Romans chapter 8. Let me invite you to go there with me. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a black hardback underneath the seat around you. My name is Mike Skinner. I am the lead pastor here at the church, and I'm happy that you are here with us this morning. A couple announcements as we get started. If today's sermon seems a little bit better than normal, it might be because I'm now the proud owner of a master's degree. Okay? Although I'm told that it, it might also be longer. I'm not sure which one. Okay, Either better or longer. Either way, we'll blame the degree on that one. Um, this morning, also, if you haven't had a chance to uh, grab an announcement sheet, they're out there on the hallway. Grab one. We've got some announcements for you. Um, one of them is that two of our own, Jimmy and Jessica, are leaving us. Uh, if you don't know Jamie and Jessica, they are right here. They've served faithfully as deacons uh, and done all kinds of stuff for us here at the church. Um, they are moving on to the next chapter of their lives. They've been called to uh, internships at a Bible software company in Washington called Logos. Um, and so they are, both of them, very brilliant people uh, in biblical languages. And so they're going up there to uh, further the kingdom um, by doing work in that regard. So we'll miss them a whole lot, um, but today we're going to say goodbye to them as well. They'll move tomorrow. Um, please know uh, that we are gathering a little gift to give them as we send them off, and so if you would be so inclined uh, to, to give them a little parting gift, we do have envelopes for a love offering. They're there on the credenza in the hallway as well, or you can drop off a check with that in the memo line as well if you would like to do that. Um, I got to thinking the other day, Jimmy and Jessica are very good friends of mine, uh, I got to thinking the other day about my life. And I remembered in eighth grade, I had a best friend named Harrison, and we were very, 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 very best friends, okay? Every night I was at his house, or he was at my house. Our families were really close. He lived next to Charles Barkley, and so, I mean, obviously he was like a step up in the socioeconomic status. Every now and then we get to play with Charles Barkley. It was awesome. That's not why I was a friend, but it was, it was, a, it was a benefit. And, and Harrison, in eighth grade, decided to move to Atlanta. Well, his parents decided, and they took him with them. And at the time, I didn't realize, right, how much of a life change it would be to have your best friend, somebody you'd been with every day almost, to, to move. And he moved, and I was sad, and it was this, this kind of hard time in my life. And then years later, um, multiple years later, I have another best friend named Adam, and Adam and I are best friends. And then Adam grows up and graduates college and decides that he's going to move, and, and so Adam moves, and, and it's a hard time in my life. And then... Years later, I have two other really good friends, best friends, Jimmy and Jessica, and then they decide to move. And I don't know if you've ever had one of those times in your life where you're noticing a pattern, and you start to think that you're the lowest common denominator. <laughs> so I've been doing some soul searching this past week, okay, and uh, trying to figure out what I'm doing wrong here with my friends. Um, but we are uh, happy to uh, send them off, and then sad to see them go. Um, and I think those are two characteristics uh, appropriate for a Christian community. Um, we're always sending. We're always being obedient to the Lord and his calling, even if that means leaving people that we love and sending people that we love off. Um, and so it's a bittersweet moment this morning. But um, we will celebrate uh, appropriately with a potluck after service. So if you can join us for that, that would be awesome. We are finishing up a series we're in called Insurrection. Uh, we started this on Easter Sunday uh, when we celebrated Jesus' resurrection from the grave. And the kind of basic point here was that Jesus' resurrection was an act of insurrection. It was a, an act of rebellion against the powers to be in our world. Um, so the scriptures will consistently personify sin and death as these powers that control us and enslave us and cause us to turn on both God and each other. Um, they use our fears, our fears for our own life, our fears for, for getting what we want to get in order to catalyze us, to, to kind of push away other people, to sometimes not obey God the way that we're supposed to obey God. And, and kind of the tagline for our series has been that Easter should make rebels out of all of us. 
when we, when we see Jesus' resurrection and then when we experience it, when we become a part of it, we should start to join the insurrection. We should start to rebel against those powers that formerly had enslaved us. So we've talked about Jesus' resurrection, the fact that he's still alive today, that the movement he started in the Gospels, calling people to lives of love and forgiveness, communities of peace and joy and freedom, that that movement is still going on. We're invited to be a part of it. We've looked at kind of the logic behind resurrection. With resurrection, with Jesus' resurrection, death is broken. Death is defeated. We sing death has been trampled down by death. And, and when death's defeated, the biggest tool that the enemy has to, to force us to turn on God and other people has been taken away. You see, um, most of us are able to obey God to a point and able to love other people to a point, right? But, but when our lives are threatened, or, or maybe kind of more psychologically our self-esteem is threatened, we're often willing to disobey God or to turn on other people. That's kind of the story of humanity, right? If you push us enough, we're going to go to war with you. And we will do whatever protects us best. But with the resurrection, Christians see death's defeated. Death no longer, according to Hebrews, should make us afraid. If a Christian means anything, it's someone who's not that intimidated by death anymore. It's someone whose life isn't controlled by death. Um, Hebrews says, you and I used to be slaves to the fear of death. So we would obey God, but, but maybe not if it causes us to die. And we would love other people, but maybe not if it caused us to die. If it caused us to lose some of what we thought was our own, sort of what we thought we deserved. Um, and then the last time we were together, uh, we looked at how baptism is the symbol of this event that brings us into Christ Jesus. And in Christ, you and I have the power of the resurrection available to us. His resurrection is something that affects us on a day-to-day life. And so we'll end this series this morning by, by talking about ways that we can practice resurrection, ways that you and I can live in a resurrection life, a life not controlled by death, a life controlled by love, a life controlled by freedom, a life controlled by peace, the life um, that Christ has come to give us. So we'll be in Romans chapter 8. I want to read with you uh, verse 1 through 17, just an amazing passage. We'll focus in on a verse or two here, um, but we'll read through it. Romans 8, 1 through 17. We'll pick it up in verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Can I get an amen? Can I get a louder amen? amen? All right, right? No condemnation for those in Christ <laughs> Jesus. None. That slate is cleared. Um, this is, again, it's this truth that you and I are, are, are kind of forced to have to believe. We have to rehearse this in our minds over and over and over again. I'm in Christ. He is in me. There's no condemnation for me. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. You start to see these two, two realities, these two places, these two spaces of life, spheres of life, flesh and spirit. We talked before, you're either in Christ or you're in Adam. Um, you're either under sin or you're freed in Christ. Here we see these two um, kind of spaces, realities, referenced in flesh or spirit. You have the flesh, you have the spirit. Um, for those, verse 5, who live according to the flesh in this old pattern of life, they set their minds on the things of flesh. For those who live according to the Spirit, set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Verse 6, for to set the mind on the things of the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For those who walk in this old way of life, not freed, they're controlled by death. We've talked about this before, whether they even realize it or not, right? I mean, most of us aren't controlled by death, physical death. We're not scared of dying each day. 
But we do have these neurotic anxieties. We know eventually we'll die, so we hoard all the stuff that we can. And we have a hard time sharing it. And we know eventually we die, so we, we build up our reputation as much as we can. And, and if that involves tearing other people down, we will. Death has this kind of stranglehold over us if we're in the flesh. But those in the spirit are free. They experience life, peace. Even knowing one day that they will die, they're at peace. Verse 7, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Verse 9, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit of life Spirit is life because of righteousness. Verse 11, here's a verse to underline, to memorize. Here's what we're zeroing in this morning. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Here's what Paul's saying here. He's saying the resurrection life which Christ experienced, this, this power that, that took this dead corpse, Okay, and, and reanimated it, brought it out through the other side of death. That same power, that same Holy Spirit dwells in us as believers. Not only dwells in us as believers, but is working right now to bring that same life to you and I. Both now and for eternity. So we experience this resurrection life now, and even when our physical bodies corrupt and die, they are reanimated like Christ. They are resurrected. This is the kind of resurrection life that we've been trying to tap into, that we want to tap into. How does it look to live a life where the same spirit who raised Jesus from the dead is dwelling inside of us? This, this resurrection life. What I want to do this morning is um, kind of real quickly survey four ways that I think we can practice a resurrection life. Four ways that we can practice a life of insurrection, a life free from death, a life that believes that Christ has defeated death. And you and I can live in that reality. Paul's aware that this is not an automatic thing. If you look in verse 12, So then, brothers, we're debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Again, there's, this is not this automatic change in Christians. When we become one in Christ, um, we're not automatically transformed so that the flesh, so that our old lives, so that the world around us never bothers us again. This is choice we have to make. We have to tap into the resurrection life. And I think there are some practices that you and I can cultivate, um, some things that we can do, some concrete actions we can put into place that will help us tap into this resurrection life and live as resurrection people. And so today, I want to survey a few of those with you. Okay, sound good? All right. Um, first one, okay. Um, how can you and I live as if the Spirit of Christ dwells inside of us, giving life to our bodies? The first one, I think, is this. Um, thankful worship. Number one, thankful worship is an act of resurrection. Thankful worship is a way we act like resurrection people. Giving thankful worship is an act of insurrection. It's an act of rebellion against the powers of sin and of death that control you and I. If we keep reading in Romans in verse 14, all who are led by the Spirit of God, Paul says, are sons and daughters of God, are children of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. There we see those themes again. You have fear and slavery. And that's not us anymore. We have received the spirit of adoption as children, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. 
The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Here's this, this beautiful truth here, okay? And, and Paul's kind of exploding in worship as he, he ramps up to these. He says we, we're supposed to live by the Spirit. We're supposed to uh, understand that that same Spirit is dwelling inside of us. Why? Because we're no longer slave people and we're no longer afraid people. We're children of the Most High God. We've been adopted. Now, my parents adopted a little girl a few years ago. A little Hispanic girl grew up in Waco, Anna, and she was about eight years old when they adopted her. And eight years old is a long enough time for somebody to be uh, taken advantage of, right? To kind of be abused and to kind of get into these bad habits of life and these bad habits of reaction and things of that nature. And so my parents have to work really hard uh, to try to mature her, right? To try to get her to develop her emotional skills, her ability to react to certain situations and things of that nature. And we can just say that the last weekend was not great for Anna, okay? Um, falling back into some bad patterns of behavior. And so one of the things that happens, unfortunately for her, for my little sister, is when family gets around, she feels this need to try to be the center of attention um, because she doesn't want to be forgotten, right? She, she probably feels a little bit threatened, like maybe she doesn't really belong, right? I'm an outsider here among all of these people. And so um, this weekend was obviously about me because I was graduating, okay? And so I made that very clear to her at the beginning. We sat down and I said, I don't know who you think you are, all right? This is my graduation day. This is all about me. And so she, she is being kind of loud and disobeying my parents and then kind of melting down. And it turns into like this really bad weekend on our behalf. Um, she, she, in a sense, doesn't live into this peace that she's one of us. She's afraid. She's afraid that if she doesn't fight for it, she's going to lose it. She'll lose our love and affection. She's afraid if she doesn't remind us, we're going to forget about her. And we're going to forget she's actually one of us, right? She's been adopted into the family. Um, it's, it's not sunk down deep inside of her. And what that does is it, it causes her to react in these old, unhealthy ways, right? I think our Christian life is sometimes a lot like that. When we forget who we are, when we forget our identity, right? We, we react in ways that, that we used to react in. I mean, I know I do this. You throw temper tantrums, right? Um, you, you try to be the center of attention. You try to prove your worth. Now, we're a lot better at it than like a four-year-old right? Ours are more mature temper tantrums, much more passive aggressive. But Paul's saying here, look, you need to understand that you've been adopted. You've been given a gift. Your life is a gift. Your identity is a gift. And you need to respond in worship and thanksgiving. And that makes all the difference in how you and I will live a resurrection life, to receive our lives in thankful worship. We've been adopted. Um, For one, our identity, who we are, um, is a gift. So, so psychologists would say that most people operate out of what's called an identity of possession. Okay, we have possessed certain things. Um, this works like this: I worked really hard. I have a master's degree. I'm smart. You listen to me. I possess that. I own that. That's mine. I uh, just bought a car. That's my car. Right? I live in an apartment. That's my apartment. An identity of possessions. I, I see the world around me based on what's mine and what's yours. Right? What I've worked for, what I've achieved, what I've accomplished. Um, the scriptures, I think, are going to try to get you and I to completely come out of that way of thinking. Out of an identity of possession into an identity of gift. An identity of gratitude. That says, everything that I am and have, I've been given as a gift. I didn't earn it. I didn't deserve it. And I don't have to hold on to it. 
And I don't feel threatened if I feel like I'm losing it to where I would have to turn on somebody else or disobey the Lord. And I'm free to give it away. So this works with my identity. This works with our identities. Sometimes I think um, we're better at being generous with our stuff than we are with ourselves. Um, We think we've earned the right to be seen a certain way, right? I have a certain reputation. People see me a certain way. I have a certain platform. I have a certain um, place of influence in the world. And when I feel like that's being threatened, sometimes we can be made to turn on other people, to push other people out of the way, to make sure we strut ourselves up and keep our place in the world. But Christians like Christ say, we're okay taking the lesser seat. I can take the lower seat at the table. I don't really have to be that concerned with my reputation, how smart people think I am, how great of a preacher I am. I can actually serve other people. I can help their reputations. I can promote them in my workplace. I can point out their skills. I don't have to tear them down. I can serve them. Why? Because my, my very self is not based on what I've done or can do. It's based on who I am. I'm a child. When I worship, I'm subverting this sense of possession over my identity. I am not the person who got that reputation and the person who has that influence. I'm the person who freely received a gift. And it can't be taken away from me. This is what we try to remind my little sister, right? Guess what? You're adopted. It ain't going to change. Even if you feel like we're ignoring you, right? It's tough luck. You're here forever. That's just how it is. You can't lose it. You didn't earn it. You don't have to fight for it. You don't have to worry about it. And then with stuff, right? When, we, when we're thankful people, when we're gracious people, when we understand that, that everything that's been given to us is a gift by God, then we live with much, much looser hands on our stuff. We don't have to feel threatened when people come close to our stuff. When, when our stuff starts going away, I think what most of us do is we, is we give away money fairly generously, but there's always this fence. There's always this line. That we don't cross. And we get really uncomfortable, right? If that line starts getting crossed. If that, that line starts getting in, infringed upon. Because we're afraid. What are we going to do without this? We need this. We need a certain amount. The Christian community, though, from day one, has always been freed up to live very graciously. To go, all of this was a gift to begin with. I don't have to hold on to it with tight hands. My identity can't be taken from me, so I'm not afraid of it being taken from me. My stuff can't be taken from me. It was given to me. I'm not afraid of it being taken from me. And when I see a need, I'm free to respond generously, to serve others, to love others, as if they were myself. Um, There's an author, William Stringfellow, who who writes about a story that happened to himself. He was about to leave his house and fly to Boston for a lecture he was going to give. And his phone was ringing as he was walking out, and he was like, I don't want to answer it. But he ended up walking back and answering it, taking the call. And it turned into, of course, like a 30-minute conversation when he's already late for his plane. And the conversation centered around uh, someone back at his home church. Um, someone had come in off the street, a lady who couldn't pay her rent. And she needed to pay her rent, and it was this whole long situation. And he was like, should we pay it? Should we not pay it? How are we going to get the money? Are we sure? You know, this is all a sound situation. It's not shady, anything like that. And, and Stringfellow recounts kind of getting short with the guy. And being like, look, i got to go. I've got a lecture to do. You can't handle this on your own. And goes, and remember, the church had just bought these beautiful tapestries. And he goes, here's what you're going to do. Sell the tapestries, pay her rent. And hangs up the phone, okay, and leaves. And on, his, on the plane right over, and then during the lecture, he keeps second-guessing himself. He's like, I was really short, right? Maybe I shouldn't have said that. What was I doing? Um, and as he thinks about this, he less and less second-guesses himself. He goes, no, I think that was the right answer. He says, because the church has to be willing, as he thinks about the story later on, to sell her stuff to help somebody else. 
And he says, it wasn't really about the tapestries, right? They, they didn't need to sell the tapestries to pay the rent. They could have done it in a million other ways, right? You could have called somebody. You could have raised some money at a church service. It wasn't anything like that. But the moment the tapestries were unavailable to the world, because they're ours, he says they lose all religious significance. It's not about the fact that they should have sold the tapestries and paid the rent. It's about the fact that they have to be able to. They have to have that freedom. Christians, if, if we live thankfully, we have this freedom to, to serve other people in a way that I think would look radical to the world around us, right? In a way that would go, they seem like they're operating under different rules. And we go, yeah, it's called resurrection rules. We're not afraid of death. We're not afraid of losing stuff. We don't have to hoard everything right now. We've entered into this whole new mode of being where we can love and serve self-sacrificially. If you have your Bibles, flip with me to Acts chapter 4. Thankful worship is an act of resurrection. It's a practice of instruction. Acts chapter 4, we get a picture of the early church. And in fact, the picture we get of them is that they are a thankful, worshiping community um, that has very open hands with their identities. Acts 4, we'll pick up in verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were in one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them. And brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. You see this little early Christian community living this radical, sharing, generous way, okay? This is like a, um, like a voluntary communist community, right? This is, this is definitely not communism, right? There's no government-enforced economy, okay? This is a group of spirit-filled believers coming together and saying, if there's a need, we'll meet it. This isn't our stuff. If I have to sell my house, I have to sell my house. If I have to get rid of some land, I'll get rid of some land. But I'm able now to love others sacrificially because this life and protecting what's mine is not the only thing at stake for me anymore. Being afraid of losing stuff or being afraid of losing my life won't prevent me from loving people who are in need. Won't prevent me from being the kind of person Christ has called me to be. Um, I think this is why almost every time in the New Testament when you see a call to love, you'll see before or after, in some cases both, um, a thanksgiving or a doxology. Um, the call to love is always wrapped up in thankfulness. We're able to love, and we're able to love self-sacrificially because we, we've changed and traded in our identity of possession for an identity of gratitude. Everything is a gift, and we recognize it as such. Um, Karl Barth said this, Grace, our free gifts, it always demands the answer of gratitude. Grace and gratitude belong together like heaven and earth. Grace evokes gratitude like the voice of an echo, and gratitude follows grace like thunder follows lightning. To be resurrection people uh, is to come into this identity of, of adoption, this identity of gift, this identity of gratitude where we receive and live as if all is a gift. Um, the second thing I want to say here, um, the second way that we can cultivate this resurrection life is by singing. I think maybe if we got better at singing, we'd be better resurrection people. I think singing is this act of resurrection. In fact, I think singing can be a very powerful act of insurrection, this way of defying the powers. I'll give you an example of this. If you flip to Acts chapter 16, in Acts chapter 16, I think you see this in action. If you know anything about the American Civil Rights Movement, you'll know that singing is often this politically subversive act. 
right? They're, they're marching and trying to get um, equal rights for all different types of colored people. And, and even when they're being persecuted and even when they're being imprisoned and even when they're being sprayed down with water or, or hose in their eyes, they, they sing a song. And it's this, this politically subversive act that strengthens their community, strengthens their resolve, and really frustrates the people trying to oppress them. Singing is this really powerful way of standing up to the powers, perhaps more than we acknowledge sometimes. In Acts 16, you have Paul and Silas in Philippi. Um, you'll see if you would read through Acts that they are two people who are not afraid of death, right? They're living this resurrection life. They're totally okay with whatever would come their way as long as they obey Christ. Now, in verse 16, we'll read um, there in Philippi. As they were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought our owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. I have this problem a lot. It's really difficult to go like town center, places like that. This she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, <laughs> turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. Um, I don't know if you ever heard of like a virtue of necessity. This seems to be like a miracle of necessity, okay? Paul's so annoyed with this girl walking around announcing who they are. He's just like, come out of her, Spirit. Um, but when her owners saw that her hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews that are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that aren't lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. And the crowd joined in attacking them. The magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Not the best day for Paul and Silas. When my iPhone's internet is really slow, I can get really frustrated, right? And I can kind of forget about being thankful and being loving to other people. And shut up, it's trying to load. Just give me a minute, all right? Back up. Paul and Silas have a pretty, pretty low day here, okay? They've been beaten. They're bleeding. They've got their feet in stocks. And here's their reaction, verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. They're in this, this prison cell singing. I think a lot like these, these civil rights movements who would, who would get beat up and arrested and they would just sing. There's something about singing that has this power to galvanize, that has this power to point toward true reality, even in the face of persecution. I think where you see movements of insurrection, like the civil rights movement, a, a movement about love standing up to powers of darkness and hate, you see people who learn how to sing. And they sing to remind themselves. They sing to be strong. They seem to form bonds with each other. So they're singing, and suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the earth were shaken. And immediately all the doors were open, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. So he would have been killed for allowing the prisoners to escape on his watch. So he was just going to do it before um, the punishment. 28, but call, Paul cried out in a loud voice, do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Cyrus, and he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. This is an amazing story, because what you see here is Paul and Silas have the ability to escape the prison, okay? They know, though, that if they escape, it means this man's death. This man who had beaten them who had put them in prison, who was guarding them in prison. And they choose to stay in prison to protect this man. Singing songs, 
doing their favorites, all right, praying. All of a sudden, big earthquake, prison opens up. You maybe think they're about to start to leave, right? They're like, all right, we're out of here. And then they hear some commotion and turn around and go, what are you doing? He's like, I'm about to kill myself. No, you don't have to do that. We're here. We're staying here. And that example, right, so confuses the guard. He's like, what do I have to do to be in on this? They were living resurrection lives. They were living lives not afraid of death. And if the choice was between dying or loving the jailer, their enemy, they said, we'll love the jailer. What, are they going to kill us? That's cute. We'll be resurrected. The same spirit who raised Jesus from the dead is dwelling us right now and will continue to dwell in us even after our death. Their act of singing here, I think, is this this practice of resurrection. They sing, and they sing, and it prepares them to live resurrection lives. I think if, if we had maybe better disciplines of singing um, together and alone, we perhaps would be better prepared uh, when opportunities arise for you and I to live resurrection lives. Um, alongside singing, you see it here in Acts 16 as well, is prayer. I think this is the third one. Singing, number two. Number three, prayer is a way that we practice resurrection. It's a way that um, we sometimes join the insurrection by praying. Um, Augustine said that, he was real famous for saying that singing is praying twice. Uh, so he's like, it's good to pray. It's better to sing, though, right? I mean, singing somehow connects in your emotions much deeper than prayer does uh, at times. Um, prayer for Christians is this powerful way where we uh, kind of undercut and subvert the powers that would be and the authorities that reign or seem to reign in our world. Um, you can think of the early Christians. Uh, the Jews had this deal with the Romans that um, they were strict monotheists, so they wouldn't, they wouldn't pray to the emperor or pray to the Roman gods, but, but they cut this deal with the Romans that said, as long as you'll pray for our emperor and for our gods, then we'll leave you alone. Okay? And so that's how the Jews and the Romans kind of got along for a while. The Christians came along, and they stirred all this up, and then finally the Romans were like, forget it. Okay? Nothing. No. No more. Everyone worships the emperor, or you die. And the Christians were known for, they'd be, they'd be brought in and they'd be told, look, bow down to the emperor, you're going to die. And they would bow down and they would pray to Jesus for the emperor. And this made the Romans so mad. Right? I mean, it was so subversive. It's so disrespectful. Right? The Christians are going, look, we, we want to be on our best behavior here, but we're just going to go to the higher power. We're going to go one step above. Right? We get it. Caesar's a big deal. Right? He's very powerful. He could kill us. We all we understand that. But we think there's someone who's even more powerful than that. He's more powerful than death. And so we'll worship him and we'll approach him. Prayer can be this really politically subverted act. This is a way of resisting um, the spirituality of the powers. Um, prayer is a way of kind of exercising our own souls, getting rid of the things that we often trust in instead of Christ and his way. Um, I can think of just real recently I saw this. Um, so you've probably heard about the girls in Nigeria who were kidnapped. No? Uh, a few weeks ago, oh, a couple hundred girls at a school in Nigeria were kidnapped by a terrorist group, Boko Haram. Uh, the Twitter circle that I kind of run in is very social justice okay? And so we were hearing things about this pretty quickly. It took the national media a few days, a week or so, before it picked up. And then it became this big issue, right? Probably seen on the news, you probably heard about it. There's the classic hashtag activism, is what they call it, okay? So this big hashtag broke out, bring back our girls. Uh, Obama did a picture of it. A bunch of celebrities did pictures. Hashtag bring back our girls. And then I was on Twitter a couple days ago, and I saw this, and I thought, wow, this is the perfect example. Um, a very, very popular Christian leader put out a tweet saying this. You can't just pray and write a hashtag 
and expect <coughs> the girls to be safe. At some point, guys with bigger guns than the terrorists have to go in and free them. And I thought, okay, I get his point, right? The point is kind of like sometimes as Westerners, we make ourselves feel really good about ourselves by doing a cute little sign and taking a picture of it, right? And we got it's not really doing that much. But I'm like, you just made that point at the cost of something very valuable, which is prayer. I mean, you threw prayer in there with the hashtag. If you just had the hashtag, that'd be fine. Um, but, but what would it mean to say you can pray all you want, but at some point you have to take guns in there to free those girls? It means that you don't, you don't really believe in prayer. Come on now. That's atheistic reasoning. The way the world works, we know, is not God. It's guns. It's dictators. It's world leaders. Christians say, though, we get that they're really powerful. We get it, right? Just like Caesar was really powerful. We understand that. But we still think there's one more powerful. So we're not going to ask you first. We're going to go to the source. We're going to go to the source. We're going to pray. Um, we read in our scripture reading in, in John 14. Jesus leaves the disciples and goes, look, whatever you need, ask me. I'll give it to you. And when Christians come to situations like this, and, and we need something powerful to happen, we don't go ask the military. We go ask Jesus. He's a little bit stronger and more powerful and wiser than the military is. Again, right? If there is no God, and we often just somehow fall into this way of thinking, right? This is just how the way the world works. You have nukes and you have guns, and those people make the world run. But Christians go, no, we just know about something else in the world. So we're going to pray. We're going to pray. And it's subversive, and it's political, and it's this act of insurrection that says he's really in charge. Now, don't think I'm this radical pacifist Christian, right? I get sometimes there does need to be the guns that go in, and there does need to be military strategy and those kind of things. But not at the expense of prayer. Not to undercut prayer. Not to be like, we get that prayer doesn't really work, so bring in the guns. Christians go, no, 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 this is our first strategy. We're praying. We're not dropping to our knees to the state or to the nation. We're dropping our knees to the Lord, to Christ. And when we pray, we cultivate this resurrection life. It says, this is how the world runs. It's run by a risen Lord who's calling us to follow him. Prayer, number three. And then number four, our last one, um, community. Living in community, I think, is a way that we practice resurrection, um, that we're able to perform and join this act of insurrection. You and I are not meant to live the Christian life alone. Um, and in fact, I don't think it's possible to live this, this kind of resurrection life alone. Um, to be able to live sacrificially, to love sacrificially. Um, I think it's scary, terrifying, and, and then it's going to paralyze us. Um, you have to understand Jesus' call to live sacrificially in the larger context of living in a community. Does that make sense? So if you're all by yourself, giving up everything you have puts you at risk, right? But imagine you're not all by yourself. You're surrounded by a whole bunch of people with all kinds of resources and love for you. Then all of a sudden giving up certain stuff is a lot more safe. Does that make sense? Do you see how that works there? I want to show you this in a real famous passage that sometimes we miss this on. Um, go to Mark 10. It's the last place we'll turn. Mark chapter 10. Uh, this is the rich young ruler, okay? Um, real famous passage. I think sometimes we, we miss a little detail here that, that maybe would illuminate our reading. Mark 10, we'll pick it up in verse 17. As he was setting out on his journey, Jesus, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Don't defraud. Honor your father and mother. That's a commandment. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, I love that it puts in there. He loved him. And he said to him, 
you lack one thing, go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. So this is a morally upright person who happens to be rich. Jesus says, get rid of all of it and then you can be on my team. And we can all identify with this guy. Can't do it. He's afraid. He's disheartened. And he walks away sad. And you kind of get mad at Jesus for letting him walk away. Okay, go after him and tell him, not really. That was just a test. You're in. It's your money. He goes away. And, and, and we can all identify with this, right? This is a guy who has an identity of possession. And there's too much fear there. Can't give it up. But notice what Jesus says as the disciples respond to this. He looks around, says to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. And Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult is it to enter the kingdom of God? It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Um, and they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them with man who is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. And Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said this, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. He doesn't say in heaven. He doesn't say after you die. He says now. He says if you have to sacrifice your mother, that relationship, don't worry, you'll receive mothers. If you sacrifice some stuff, don't worry, there'll be stuff for you. This makes sense in the context of church and community. He says, look, you, you don't understand, right? I mean, you would. There are situations. I, I was just hearing about a girl the other day who's a Muslim, and she's converted to Christianity. Her whole family's abandoning her, right? And that's a sacrifice. It's an extreme sacrifice. But guess what? She's not losing a mother. She's gaining hundreds of mothers of whatever community she's going to be a part of. Now, if she was a lone ranger Christian, that kind of sacrifice might be impossible. But in the context of community, that kind of sacrifice, that kind of resurrection life, makes a little bit more sense. Jesus says, look, you're not, not getting rid of anything that, that's not going to be there for you now. You see this in the Christian early community. Again, they're getting rid of their stuff, um, but they're not starving to death. right? They're taking care of each other. They're smart. They're loving each other. They know that if I have a need, it'll be met, just like I'm meeting the need of the person around me. Jesus doesn't think the rich young man's going to give up everything he has and then go starve for three weeks. That's not the plan. Sell it. Let's put it in the group. Your needs will be taken care of as well. But he's so paralyzed by this identity of possession. This is my stuff. I have to have control over this. That he can't walk into this identity of gratitude and say, it's a gift. I'll give it away like a gift and I'll receive more of it like a gift. Christians were made to live in community, and this kind of sacrificial love, I think, only works in the context of community, where I'm free to sacrifice because I know that if things go wrong for me, I have people who will back me up. I think this is one of the more powerful things about being involved in a church community. And looking around the room, for some of us who have really invested here in FCQ, one of the things that maybe has hit us the most about our time at FCQ is this sense that we have a, a family that's not biological, but is as real, if not more real, than our biological family. This sense that uh, there's a group of dozens and dozens of people who would do whatever they needed to do for me. Who would drop what they were doing, 
come find me, who would come get me, who would sell things if they needed to, who would have my back, give me encouragement, give me prayer, pick me up when I make mistakes, challenge me to sacrifice, challenge me to love more. And without that, I'm, I'm not sure the resurrection life is, is possible to the extent that we're called to live it. Community, living in community, me helping you and you helping me, me forgiving you and you forgiving me. This is an act of insurrection to the world around us. Um, I've said this before, the church doesn't have a strategy to give to the world about how the world should work. The church is the strategy, right? So, so like with economics, the church doesn't say, hey, this is how the government should do their economics. Put it all together and then give it to those in need. It, it, it doesn't work that way. I don't think a Christian would expect the government to be able to do that, right? But a voluntary community whose hearts have been transformed by the Spirit might be able to live in such a way. This is not a strategy to give the world. This is a picture to show the world. It's a city on a hill. It's a, it's a whole alternative society that people look at and go, now that's something interesting. It looks like they're not even afraid to lose their stuff. It looks like they can love and sacrifice. It looks like they're not even afraid of death. They're living in this resurrection life. Um, I'll wrap up. We were on this trip to New York a few weeks ago. I took some high schoolers to New York, and we uh, were serving with some churches in New York, and there's this one church, New City Church, they were a church plant, and the part of Brooklyn they were in was just dirty. I mean, it was just nasty. And we come from Sugar Land. It's like Disney World down here, okay? Mm-hmm. If you see trash, it's like, what is happening? We're being invaded by terrorists. What's going on here? Um, but this place was just trash everywhere. It was so nasty. It smelled bad. And they were having huge political debates in this little community in Brooklyn about what to do with the trash. Um, and it kind of centered on... Are we going to allocate funds in our budget to pay people to clean this up? Uh, and there were people who wanted that because, look at it, it's a nasty trash heap. And then other people said, well, either you're going to raise taxes on these poor people to begin with, or you're going to take away from education and, and, and police and those kind of things that are necessary. And so New City Church, what they did was they went to a uh, city meeting and they said, stop talking about the trash problem, it's over. And they said, oh, what's your idea? What's, what, are you gonna, what do you have for us? And they said, we don't have an idea, but we're here. They said, we'll clean up the trash. That'll be our job in the city. And every week, city people and volunteers they have go out, New City Church t-shirts, and clean up the trash. They say, we're going to be a blessing to your city. We're going to be a blessing to our city. Uh, we don't have a plan for you. We don't know how to figure it out, right? Do you take it out of the budget? Do you raise taxes? That's, yeah. Here's what we do know. I get to sacrifice my time. I don't need all my time. I can sacrifice some money. I don't need all my money. I can sacrifice my reputation to be seen picking up trash. I don't need my reputation. So let me bless you. Let me be a light to you. Let me be a blessing to you. And so this community went out and they, they lived a resurrection life in front of others. And so we'll end our insurrection series uh, similarly to how we began it um, as we declare together uh, that the Lord is risen and that uh, he has called us to follow in his life into the future. So... Ladies and gentlemen, Christ is risen. Let's pray together.